This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of O-Scale Trains Magazine. If you're interested in serious model railroading craftsmanship, then O-Scale Trains Magazine is your source for inspiration. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Hey, guess what? There's a candle on that cake. Well, that's right. The Model Railway Show is one year old with this broadcast, and we're pumped as we head into our second year. We've had some great guests in year one, the biggest names in the hobby, along with the innovators and clear thinkers who keep this great hobby of ours moving ever forward. And we've had some really supportive feedback from you, our listeners. Thanks for staying with us and spreading the word. Trevor and I will reminisce later on, but first we want to tell you about two guests we think are fitting for an anniversary show that's looking to the future. Both are model railroaders who have fully embraced the internet as a way of connecting and serving other hobbyists. Later in the show, I'll chat with Joe Fugate of the Ezine Model Railroad Hobbyist about how the internet is redefining the way model railroad magazines look and perform. But first, a look at the power of podcasting as Trevor talks to another show host, Tom Barbelay of the Model Rail Radio Podcast. For this, our one-year anniversary show, I thought it would be interesting to talk to a person who helped get the Model Railway show started, whether he knows it or not. Tom Barbelay is the producer and host of Model Rail Radio, another podcast about our wonderful hobby. If you don't know of this podcast, you can find it the same way you found the Model Railway show. Search for it on iTunes or visit the Model Rail Radio website for details on how to listen. We'll have a link to Model Rail Radio in our episode guide. Model Rail Radio takes a different approach from ours. Jim and I styled the Model Railway Show on the classic radio news magazine format. Tom's show invites more audience participation as a call-in show. The phone-in segment can turn into a marathon chat session running several hours. This is then edited down into a traditional podcast. Tom is no stranger to podcasting, but we'll let him describe his experience in his own words. Tom, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Always a pleasure, Trevor. Thank you for having me on. Now, I mentioned you helped us start the Model Railway Show. Inspired might be the better word. In the past, you've said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that anybody can podcast. What do you mean by that? Well, if you look at the Model Rail hobby in particular, it is both an aesthetic and also a technical hobby. And if you have enough skills to even build a basic shelf layout and wire it up, you certainly have enough skills to record, edit, and release a podcast. So my feeling is that the barriers for entry for podcasting are particularly low, and certainly the technical and also the attention to detail skills that most model railroaders have also lends it to something that they should consider doing as well. Now, you've even offered to help others get started. Why is it that you love this medium so much? I have particular views associated with technology, and I think the one thing that humans are really good at is communicating and can communicate across nation states uh, internationally and a lot of that has really been embodied in model rail radio the idea that really anyone can be a participant and anyone can have a voice and i think this is something which transcends model rail i've done other podcasts as well i'm really very passionate about the medium and i think it's a unique medium i don't think it's like radio or television or print publication i think it has particular strengths and one of those strengths is just the ability to get a vast quantity of listeners very very rapidly you mentioned that model rail radio is not your first podcast Uh, tell us about how you got started with podcasting well my original passion is artificial life which is associated primarily in my case with simulation software and the thing that captivated me was that i was contacted in about 2003 by another artificial life practitioner and i realized that we had a community of passionate folk and this will sound very familiar to model rail 
I wrote as well, who like to talk about their particular projects. So the first podcast that I did was called Ape Reality. It's an ongoing podcast, and it's me talking about my particular artificial life project. But then I broadened it into the Biota podcasts for other artificial life practitioners to participate. And it's funny, actually, the crossover. We've had Duncan McCree and I think Chris Abbott and a few other listeners to both podcasts. How did Model Real Radio actually come about then? I considered doing a hobby podcast. I appeared on a podcast called Podcast 411, funnily enough, which is a bit like the Inside the Actors Studio for podcasting. And there I noted that at the time, and this was 2007, there was only one Model Rail podcast. And I really thought that was a shameful effort from the Model Rail community uh, because essentially podcasting is seen as being a, a nerd hobby. And I just couldn't understand why podcasters hadn't actually started recording a number of Model Rail podcasts. In parallel to this, I also have an interest in wargaming, uh, miniatures, toy soldiers, that kind of stuff. And there were probably about 20 podcasts at the time associated with that particular hobby. So I thought there was really a need for a model rail podcast that was considerably more pluralist than the well, two plus relatively successful offerings that were already there. And certainly my experience through doing Biota seemed to indicate that if I opened a phone line, I may get callers. Yes, and you certainly have. You recently celebrated two years of podcasting on Model Rail Radio. Congratulations on that. How's the program grown over that time? It's... (laughs) (laughs) It's been an overwhelming success. When I started doing Model Rail Radio, I really wasn't sure if the listeners were ready for an ad-free, listener-generated podcast that was absolutely free, wouldn't ask them to send money or anything like that, and didn't have any form of sponsorship. I thought, certainly from some initial feedback, that this was going to be relatively radical and maybe responded to hostilely. In contrast to that, the Model Rail community has just opened their arms to Model Rail Radio. And in terms of the growth rate, it's just absolutely astonishing. I think the thing that is interesting for me about the hobby is that there is obviously a core group of hardcore hobbyists, but then there are a number of folk that are actually interested either in getting back into the hobby or starting the hobby. And that seems to be the primary growth demographic associated with model rail radio. And it's something that I keep in mind, particularly when I get new listeners on who are just starting layouts, because I think they really are the voice of a majority of the listenership of model rail radio. And why did you choose the call-in format? Well, as I mentioned, I'd already had this experience with Biota Live. You've got to appreciate the artificial life community is between three and 600 practitioners worldwide. I mean, it's a very, very, very small community compared to Model Rail. And even by doing that, having an open call in line, I would get maybe four or five folks in the chat. I would get frequent participants who were either starting out or had particularly eclectic views. So my sense has always been that if you open a line for a relatively technical hobby, you'll be able to get folks calling in. And you certainly have a regular cast of characters who call into the show. What keeps bringing those people back? I think you'd have to ask them. I mean, certainly Chris Abbott came on almost instantly. And my sense with Chris Abbott is that he's really grown through doing aspects of model rail radio, particularly because you guys obviously have quite a a posse of folk in your part of the world. But some of the international uh, communication, also some of the eclectic communication has kept people who have a really senior and very technical view associated with the model railroading hobby like Chris Abbott. But I think it's a sense of community. And what I've found is folks who only maybe have been listening to the show for a couple of months and call in immediately feel welcomed, know the characters already, know their stories. And, yeah, I think it just is a community that is building on itself continuously. 
Now, you've mentioned that the community has just embraced the podcast with open arms. I suspect that has something to do with the T-shirts. Tell us about the T-shirts, <laughs> because they're starting to appear all over the place. We can't go to a local show around here without seeing them. We were in Springfield, and people were walking around in them. That's, the, of course, the, the great big show in Massachusetts every year. The T-shirts have become a phenomenon. Tell us about those. Well, it's funny when you introduced me associated with searching on iTunes, because yeah, you may actually find the podcast faster on a T-shirt. My experience with regards to podcasting early on, and it came to actually moving to the US or moving back to the US in 2005-2006, my understanding of the tax codes in the US wasn't particularly good at the time. My thought was that if I gave away t-shirts, I could do it as a tax write-off, little did I know. So when I started doing Ape Reality, I gave away about 450 Noble Ape t-shirts, and that was something early on that really got a community going for a start, but also promoted the podcast going into the future. And I think the thing with the T-shirt is it's a, probably the cheapest means of actually getting the idea of the podcast out to folk. The T-shirt is just an amazing way of getting folks listening in. And the funny thing is, from doing Ape Reality and giving away, you know, 450 T-shirts, most of the T-shirts that you're seeing now are actually folks reaching out to the Cafe Press site and buying T-shirts. And the T-shirts are at no additional cost. I mean, they're basically cost price. So people are getting the cheapest possible T-shirt and the cheapest possible way of, of showing their uh, enjoyment of Model Rail Radio. So I think it's a win-win situation. And, yeah, the T-shirts have just been part of my historical podcasting legacy, but certainly the Model Rail Radio listenership has embraced them. The other thing that you're going to have to start giving away is some sort of cream for what Chris Abbott, who's the tech director here on the Model Railway Show, he refers to as podcasters numbum because he says he spends hours sometimes sitting as the recording sessions go on. Why are the shows so long, or the call-in segment at least? Is that because one thing I notice is that you get callers coming in from all over the world who are living in different time zones, so maybe some of them are starting at the beginning of the show, and then as they're dropping out, you're getting new people signing on. What's going on with the length of the shows? There are a couple of questions there, and my point to Chris Abbott is I think he should walk around a little bit, and he does. He gets up. Um, beaded chair covers apparently are very good for uh, those kind of problems. Uh, but seriously, the lengths of the shows are really just a phenomenon in and of themselves. There's no science behind it. I originally started in large part due to my wife and my cats demanded that the shows stay under two hours. But as the listenership grew, and particularly as the participants, you know, the number of folks who are actually calling in the variety of stories that they were to tell increased, the podcast just got longer and longer and longer. It now, for folks who just listen to it in podcast format, probably don't get a sense can record up to eight or nine hours, which is really quite a commitment. In theory, it would be because there were people in a variety of different time zones and I was reaching out to all of them. In, in reality, actually doing a morning podcast is far better for that. And we have floated a few morning podcasts. The problem with the morning podcast is they go on even longer. So I, technically, if there was some science behind it, I would say, yes, I am doing it to get as many time zones as possible. But the phenomenon that I've noticed, and particularly with first-time callers, is that they expect and typically have an hour's worth of material at least. So I don't want to stop people from calling in. And in fact, doing the scheduling associated with the show, really there is no scheduling. We have a list of people who may call in, and we recorded a show last night, and only one out of five of the potential callers called in. But we still had a lot of regulars, and we still had a, a lot of content. So I think the show length and the editing of the shows really go hand in hand. 
But yeah, it's just a phenomena and there's no science behind it. It certainly sounds like you've let Model Rail Radio grow in some sort of organic fashion, but do you have long-term plans for the podcast? Where would you like to see the podcast be in another two years, for example? The rate of growth has been absolutely staggering. It's exponential growth from the textbooks. I mean, it really is absolutely staggering. I can't really predict where Model Rail Radio will be in two years. I think my commitment is just maintaining the content and the quality currently, but certainly there's no stopping the listeners coming in. My sense is it's going to be more of the same. We just celebrated two years, as you noted, and I thought it was very important to play the first show or the zeroth show, which only went on for three minutes at the end of the podcast, just to reinforce that I was sticking to my guns with the format of the podcast. So I don't see any major changes aside from vast quantities of content uh, that new listeners and current listeners will bring and potentially maybe splitting it up into a weekly show or something like that because recording 10, 15 hours on a Saturday probably just won't be happening as the length of shows tend to increase. Well, Tom, thanks for joining us here on the Model Railway Show. It's been a pleasure to have you here and tell us about Model Rail Radio. Thank you very much, Trevor. Talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. You know, Trevor, we blew an opportunity. We should have left Tom at the mic and headed down the street for a celebratory pint. That sounds like a great idea, Jim. But, you know, there's lots to celebrate. We've been on the air for a year, and I think we've stuck to our mandate of being fast-paced and looking for notable guests. And we haven't fought with each other. We're still getting along, so there's something else to celebrate. That's true. When we set out to do this, Trevor, I think we are of a like mind. This wasn't going to be about technique. You can't describe track laying on a podcast, but you can certainly embrace ideas and concepts discuss philosophies, think about why it is we do what we do with our layouts and why it's such a great hobby. Exactly. And I know that a lot of our listeners listen while they're in the car commuting. So we hope that we're keeping you awake when you're behind the wheel. Keep both hands on the wheel. Don't use your cell phone. And we'll keep bringing you great shows. That's a promise, indeed. Now, we also have an announcement to make. As you know, we have our Flickr gallery where we show some of the finest work of our guests. But now we have a model railway show store where you you can get t-shirts, coffee mugs, beer glasses, basically anything you want to show your appreciation for the show and enjoy an adult beverage. All the while announcing to those who see you using these items what good taste you have in podcasting. Absolutely. And coming up next, we have another example of that because up next, we again train our eyes on the horizon as Jim and his guest, Joe Fugate, discuss how the internet has changed the way magazines are designed and delivered and how they're adapting to serve a changing hobby. When I sift through the back issues of my model railroad magazines, 20 or 30 years doesn't seem that long ago. Often the magazine articles still feel current. I can recall what I was doing in the hobby at that time, along with other details of my life, which I guess makes the exponential advancement of communications technology since then all the more remarkable. Suppose 30 years ago some futurist had told me I'd be able to get my model railroad magazine for free that it would come to me through the air, and I'd be able to read it on a device smaller than a pocket transistor radio. What's more, all the back issues would be available for me to scan. The ads would talk to me, and the pictures and the construction articles would come to life. And all of this would be interactive. I'd be able to share my thoughts instantly with other readers and hear theirs. A hundred years in the future, perhaps, but certainly not thirty. Well, here we are. Thanks to the World Wide Web, we now have e-zines, magazines that are downloadable from the Internet. Model Railroad Hobbyist is a prominent magazine among them. Its creator and publisher, Joe Fugate, is, of course, an accomplished model railroader. But he also has a background in computer software and database design and owns his own video company, Model Trains Video. Joe, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Jim. I'm delighted to be here. First, congratulations for producing such a posh-looking magazine. Now, my sidekick, uh, Trevor, is a very tech-savvy guy. 
Myself, I model with flint tools, so you, you may have to be a little bit patient with me here. Can I start by asking you, what's the circulation? Well, that's an interesting question, Jim, because uh, unlike a paper magazine, we can't just go count physical copies of something. Uh, you know, people could download one issue and then, uh, and we've actually got emails about this, you know, make 90 copies for all the buddies at the club, for example. So the way that we measure our audience size is we look at our web audience and we track monthly unique hits to our website. And we figure that that's a pretty good indication of how many people are interested in the magazine. And so the number there is we peak in the winter. That's when the hobby, it's cyclical. And the last peak, which was last winter, was uh, 49,281. Well, that's pretty impressive. Take a bow. Yes. And we're marching on our way up again this fall. And the numbers that we're getting each month this fall are about 20% higher than they were last year. So we're expecting we'll break 50,000 this winter. Well, model railroading, Joe, is a kinetic hobby. Our models move. In your founding editorial two years ago, the header said the trains move. And now with MRH, we finally have a publication that can show it. Is that the really big thing about model railroad hobbyist? Well, that is certainly one of the big things because we can easily put media in the magazine. But we have a phrase that we use from now and then on the magazine. It's called MRH is lean, mean, and green. And lean means you can take the entire magazine collection with you and that you can be on any device, a computer, a tablet, a smartphone. We have people that read us on their telephone, believe it or not. Mean because you can include things like the 3D animations, audio and video. It's instantly searchable. Rod's Index, which you can access on our website, will let you search all of the back issues. You can also search us in Google. If you put Model Railroad Hobbyist in front of the search phrase, it'll find stuff in our magazines. And then lastly, of course, and not least, is for advertisers, one click and you're on their website. So then the last part, green, no dead trees, no toxic ink and landfills, no hydrocarbons from transportation. And then this is more the mean again part, I guess. Articles can be as long as they need to be. And so we can take the space to explain it right, and we don't dumb down the articles that we put in the magazine. How did all this start? You've been at, what, two years now? Two and a half? Going on three years. Mm -hmm. Well, it started... I've actually been a publisher before in the 1980s, and my wife's background, very convenient. She's into desktop publishing, all of that. So it's very convenient to have a spouse that knows this stuff. Really, I think the start was about 2004 for what eventually became MRH. I'm a teacher at heart, and I was looking for a way to teach people about the hobby. So I got into digital video about 2004, and that's about when the affordable digital video cameras started to show up on the market. And one thing led to another, and I ended up on contract with Model Railroader to produce videos for them. And I did that for 2005 to 2007. But I kept looking for a way, how could we combine the open source Google model where there's all this great stuff that's free, supported by advertising, put that in some medium and get it to model railroaders. And so it all came together about 2007. I decided to launch out on my own, and so I declined any renewal on the video contract with MR. And so started to refine the concept in 2008 and started the magazine in 2009. Now, something I hadn't given a lot of thought to until I read your inaugural editorial, Joe, is there is an entirely different page design process for computer screens as opposed to printed pages. Your, your landscape, not, uh, not vertical, right? That's true. We really 
rethought paper publishing from the ground up. The main thing is that we need good pictures. We often get submissions from people that where they're saying, oh, okay, I have this great article idea, and they send us text. Well, the problem is the thing that makes or breaks a good article is photos. And if they're not done right, we can't fix that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can go into Photoshop and do some things, but Photoshop's not magic. Text, we can have our copy editors beat on your text all they need to. And one of our copy editors, for instance, is a retired editor from the Oregonian. So, you know, he knows how to make you sound good. But the photos need to be really good, and we hold to a fairly high standard there because we want our articles to look good. But the one thing that people sort of overlook with us is the video component, and that's back to what we talked about with MRH. We can now show the trains moving. It's a new way of thinking, isn't it? If people contribute it to print magazines, they forget that uh, element, do they? They do, and so I often have to coach authors who are querying us, don't forget to shoot me some video. You know, it doesn't have to be long. It can be two or three minutes. Show us the train running. Show us the new bridge installed with a nice train running over it. Whatever it is that your article's about. Or if you have some technique that would take you three pages to explain, but you can demonstrate it in 60 seconds on a piece of video, and people will go, ah, that's how it works, (laughs) then do that. And that's some of the real power of video, really. Well, it sounds like you're on the leading edge. So where's the hobby going from here? And uh, how have you placed MRH to adapt to any future changes in the hobby? One of the things I think is true is that new modelers are intimidated by all the hobby variety and complexity today. And so we need to do what we can to make the concepts as simple as we can make them. And then there's also, I think we need to update our paradigms about how people even get into the hobby. Because it used to be a lot of the baby boomers that are in the hobby today, it was, you know, I got a train set when I was a kid and got really excited about trains and we ran trains around the Christmas tree and I also saw the trains switching the team track downtown, whatever. And that's how they got into the hobby. Today, that's not necessarily so because train sets are not a fad toy like they were in the 50s and 60s. And there's fewer trains that actually do a lot of local switching these days. A lot of trains get the lettuce from California to New York as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. There are still ways that people find out about the hobby and get excited about the hobby, but we need new paradigms for Uh, that. I'm thinking that paradigm you're probably referring to is the internet, is it? That's one of them. Certainly it is. Another one is media. People like watch things on the History Channel, and there's, you know, trains will be referenced in different contexts historically. Also, there's, and I think media, movies like uh, Polar Express was extremely popular. Shows that the public still has a great fascination with trains. A lot of kids, I think, see trains if they go, like, to the shopping mall on the weekend, the modular groups got the modules set up, that sort of thing. And there's also things like Thomas, yeah. That's getting people into the hobby. You're so, talk, yeah, you're talking about things, Joe, that uh, we've addressed many times on the show. I guess the, the issue is how to get parents to make that step into the hobby itself for their children who maybe just see this as a fascinating toy. Yes, yeah. yes. So what does MRH see as the hobby's greatest information needs then? I think we need to help new modelers see how modeling modern model railroading can be fun. The hobby's greatest niche area is 
steamed to diesel transition, which is essentially modeling the 50s. There are things about modern railroading that can be very fun as well. But you don't see much of that published in the hobby. And so that's one of the things that we want to see and show modelers how modern model railroading can be fun as well. Yeah, that so, chicken and egg thing. Uh, young modelers need modern trains. Modern trains need young modelers. And, yes. Yeah. More about clubs and modular. You know, we named the magazine Model Railroad Hobbyist for a reason. It's because the hobby press hasn't been covering the people side of the hobby really well, I think. It's been more just about the stuff. And the people side of the hobby may be not as obvious as you might think. There's things about, you know, how do you find a good club? Things like even how do I use eBay? Now, that's not model train stuff, but it is the modern world. And how do I do the hobby in modern 21st century society? You know, those sort of things. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'd like to see is, well, that we're trying to do is low-pain, high-gain techniques. We have a, a series in our magazine that we call the One Evening Project. And it's a page and a half of text and pictures. And the idea is it's some quick, literally low-pain, high-gain thing that you can do that gets you a great result. And it doesn't take much page space, but it's you know all kinds of things that we can think of that will just really put the hobby into high gear for you. And then we don't want to forget the advanced techniques either. And that's where using media to lower the intimidation factor, I think, it is really valuable. Okay. We're running out of time here, Joe. So let me ask you this. What do you see as the future frontiers for e-publishing? And I'm wondering if you have any, you, you heard it here, first tidbits that you'd like to share with us. Well, it is coming like the proverbial freight train, for sure. Apple sold 40 million iPads already, and they expect to quadruple that in the next 12 months. So that's going to be 200 million iPads by 2013. Then there's things like Amazon's Kindle Fire that's coming, full color, web browser, 199 bucks. And, you know, speaking of Amazon, last May, Amazon announced that ebooks now outsell paper books. So it is definitely coming and uh, it's going to dominate. But I don't see paper going away completely either. The analogy I like to use is television did not eliminate radio and DVDs have not eliminated movie theaters. So e-publishing will not eliminate paper. But it's going to become a dominant factor. Okay. So from MRH, one of the things we're looking at is doing ebooks in 2012 as well as our e-zine. So the ebooks won't have ads. So that means they won't be free. But we're going to micro-price them. So it'll be like four dollars and ninety-nine cents for an ebook. You know, if you look at model railroading books, you go in the hobby shop and look. They're usually at least twenty bucks. And so this will be the same information, immediate download, a lot cheaper. We're going to do topic-based reprints of our magazine material as well as new stuff. Topic-based, I think, will be handy because like all the One Evening Projects that we've done, we're probably going to take those and put them all in one book that you can download for four ninety-nine. But that's one download instead of 20 downloads to get all that content. So, you know, if it's worth 5 bucks to not have to do 20 downloads to get it all, I think that would be useful. And the next frontier, I think, for advertisers is it's quickly becoming possible to put buy now buttons right in the magazine, right on their ad. Wow. Yes. That's bad news for wives, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Joe, we're out of time, but thank you so much for this. Joe Fugate, uh, thanks for letting us look inside Model Railroad Hobbyist, and uh, thanks for sharing your vision of the future with us. Well, it's been a pleasure, Jim. 
Thanks, guys. It really is amazing how the Internet has changed the hobby in the last 20 years. Try and picture how we did things, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Now, just to throw this out, a little while ago, I threw a social event for a couple of dozen model railroading friends. 20 or 30 years ago, I'd have probably had to put the ad in the back of a magazine three months ahead, spend a whole lot on long distance, and type out individual letters or what have you. Now, I phoned the caterer, I phoned the hall, and I did a group emailing, and boom, we've got an event. Yes, and it was a fine event, too. I was there. Thank you again for organizing that. That was the S-Scale Can-Am Social, and I thought it was particularly nice. You're very close to the uh, Canada-U.S. border, and I thought it was particularly nice that you had so many American friends come across and and join us. I think we got something happening. I think we did. If you're looking for something happening, you can find us on Facebook, can't you? The best way to listen to the show, of course, is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You can also find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeet.net and you will never miss an episode. Again, look at our website for details on how to listen. Should we mention once again our swag? I think we should. Before we close out this edition of the Model Railway Show, we have news of some first anniversary swag we'd like to share with you. Uh, you can visit our gift shop, look for the button on themodelrailwayshow.com, and you'll see the stuff. You don't have to get a tattoo now. You can wear our logo on a shirt. That's a good thing, too. What's up next, Jim? Well, next on the show, Trevor, you'll be chatting with Chris Lane about Carson's Publishing's third HON3 annual, and my guest, Alex Ristov, will tell us what it's like to model in a historic but obscure minority scale. Does anyone remember TT? You know, I think I do vaguely. As Jim and I wrap up the show, we want to pay special tribute to the rest of the team that's made our first year possible. Otto Vondrak continues to keep our website fresh, engaging, and second to none. Dave Woodhead's musical genius created our exclusive theme music. Please visit Dave's website to sample more of his great music, purchase his CDs, and enjoy model railroading skills. We'll have a link to that on our website, of course. And finally, we can't say enough good things about our pal Chris Abbott, whose technical skills are matched only by his killer sense of humor. Thanks, guys. You make it possible and you make it fun. Until next time, I'm Trevor Marshall. For Jim Martin, this is the Model Railway Show. Model Railway Show.